Good morning, everyone. It's uh, really good to be with you uh, here again this morning. Uh, Why don't we pray together as we uh, come to God's word? These are words from Psalm 93. The Lord reigns, he is robed in majesty. The Lord is robed, he has put on strength as his belt. Yes, the world is established, it shall never be moved. Your throne is everlasting from old. You are from everlasting. And Father, this is why we come to your words week after week, day after day, because above all else, we desperately need to hear from you. Uh, And so, Father, as we come to your words this morning, we pray that the Spirit of the Lord Jesus would be our helper. And Father, that we wouldn't just be hearers of your word, but in turn that we would be doers, so that Jesus would be honoured, and that this would be for our good. Amen. Well, I grew up uh, in a family of boys where we were absolutely competitive about everything. And I'm not just kind of talking about the standard things that you're allowed to be competitive about. Like, we would go out of our way to turn the most ridiculous things into competitions. So if we were in a swimming pool, the competition would become... Who can swim the most laps underwater without breathing, okay? Sounds pretty, you know, silly, it was, but became very dangerous. I watched my older brother nearly pass out one day doing this. We would have chili eating competitions. We would have competitions so you could jump there, BMX bikes the furthest. It would become very dangerous. But when you're with brothers, big claims are made. All the time we would make these big claims. I can swim six laps underwater. I can jump two meters further than you. I can eat three hot chilies. But whenever these big claims were made, there was this very sharp response that would come. How much do you put on it? Now, we didn't gamble, I promise. It was just a phrase that we used. There was no money that was ever exchanged. But how much would you put on it? And it was kind of this comeback phrase to effectively say, put your money where your mouth is. You can make all kinds of big and wild claims, but can you put your money where your mouth is? And as we've been tracking through this book of Malachi, I think that what we've been seeing is that the people of God think that they do love him. They think that they are on good terms with him. If you go back to chapter 1, you see that they think that they love him. In fact, they're turning it back around on God and saying, well, how have you loved us? And really, as we come to this passage this morning, the prophet Malachi is saying, put your money where your mouth is. And as we walk through this passage this morning, we're going to see something very simple. And if you're a note taker, write this down. What you believe about your God is reflected in your giving. Hear that again. What you believe about your God is reflected in your giving. And as we walk through this passage, we're going to see this movement from the prophet Malachi saying to them, you are stingy givers. In fact, you're not just stingy, you are a people who are robbing God. And what God actually desires is that they would be faithful. But then as you take a step further and say, 
Well, what about us who are this side of the new covenant of Christ? How should we be? And the New Testament would say, offer your bodies as living sacrifices. Be joyful, be cheerful. So let's start at verse 7, where we see the reality of stingy giving. The prophet Malachi says, From the days of your fathers you have turned aside from my statutes, and you have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? There's only one thing worse than a broken relationship. What is it? What's worse than a broken relationship? Well, I would say to you, it's when one party doesn't realise it's broken. I've had times with my children where I've said to one of them, now it doesn't happen often, they're pretty good kids, but I'll say, Hannah, you need to apologise to Sam. And Hannah will shoot something back and say, why do I need to apologise? I've done nothing wrong. And this is exactly what is going on here. Malachi is saying, you need to return to God. And their response to Malachi is, we don't need to return. Why do we need to return? We've gone nowhere. And they think that their relationship with Yahweh, for their part at least, is perfectly fine. What have we done wrong? And just just as a small point of application here, this should be a big challenge to us. Spiritual decline is rarely rapid, but sometimes it's happening and we simply do not even know. Little decision after little decision, barely conscious micro decisions that are like this frog in boiling water, Slowly but surely, we are actually walking away from covenant faithfulness with our God. This is why we need one another in the family of God. To help one another to keep following, to keep trusting, to keep loving the Lord Jesus. I was listening to a pastor in America just this week on a podcast and he said this, You do not know yourself as well as you think you do. You need the family of God to help you to faithfully follow Jesus. But then in verse 8, Malachi gives the evidence. You don't think that there's any problems? Well, Malachi says in verse 8, Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? And very directly, Malachi says, in your tithes and contributions. It was required by Old Testament law that the people of God gave tithes and offerings to support the work of the priests and the Levites in the temple. It was this astounding thing that God would dwell in his temple right at the centre of his people. What an incredible privilege that this was for the people of God. And it was the role of the priests and the Levites to keep the temple functioning. And so what the people were required to do was to provide for these workers. 
But we need to be really clear. I think when we, we come to this topic of tithes and offerings, we develop this picture that God is a needy God. See, that there's one way that you can read this passage. You can think that God is being shortchanged and he's really poor, he's really in need, and so he's coming to them and saying, come on, you better give to me because I'm in lack. I'm lacking and I'm in need. But ask yourself this, is our God a needy, deficient God? Is he? Does God wake up each Sunday morning and think to himself, gee, I hope the people of God give today so that I'm not shortchanged on Monday morning? You can respond. What's the answer? No. Listen to this. The Bible reveals God to us as the one who created all things. And the natural consequence of this is that as Exodus says, all the earth is mine. There's nothing on planet Earth or in this whole universe that is not God's. Or as Deuteronomy says, as Moses says in Deuteronomy, behold to the Lord your God belongs the heavens and the highest heavens, the earth and all that is in it. Or as Job says, whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. Or as Psalm 24 says, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. The world's and all who live in it. Does God need our money? Of course he doesn't need our money. And so the question is, why did he require it in the first place? And I want to put this to you, that the reason it was required was because it was this constant reminder as the people went up to the temple week after week after week, that they are a people who trust and depend on Yahweh. The giving of their tithes and offerings was actually a regular rhythm of grace, that they do not trust in their possessions. They do not trust in all of the things that the world says they trust, but they trust Yahweh. Think about it like this as they went up to the temple, giving would have been an incredibly sensory experience. They didn't have online giving. They didn't pass around the bags. You think of all of the smells, the noises, as you would bring your offerings. It would have actually hurt their hearts a little bit to let go. But the act of giving is this rhythm of grace that is pulling the tentacles of their hearts away from their possessions and reminding them that we are Yahweh's people. We are people who trust Yahweh to provide. We are ones who depend on Yahweh for all things. Yahweh is the one who spoke creation into being right in the very beginning. Yahweh is the one who rescued us from slavery in Egypt. Yahweh took us into the promised land. Yahweh is the one who has now returned us from exile. You see, maybe, maybe for you, you've wondered why on earth giving is something that happens week after week for Christians. 
maybe, just maybe, there is this attitude in your heart that God is this needy God who lacks and he comes to us holding out his hat. But do do you see that the giving of our tithes is actually a beautiful and gracious rhythm that is reminding your heart and mine that we do not trust our money, we do not trust our possessions, we do not trust our superannuation or our property portfolio, that we are people who trust our God, the one who has given us all things. I really think that what is going on here is that Malachi is saying to these people that their giving reflects their conception of God. Hear that again. Giving reflects their conception of God. If they believe that God is the creator, the sustainer, and the owner of all things, if they truly believe that Yahweh had given himself in covenant relationship, then you would joyfully and confidently give of your tithes and offerings. Why? Because they delight in him. They trust him. They know that as they give their tithes and offerings back, that even if there is lack, imagine that the harvest has been bad. Imagine that there is drought and famine. As they come and as they give of their tithes and offerings, they're still saying to Yahweh, you are the one in whom we trust. Or for those of us who are this side of the cross, think of Jesus, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. This is a bit of a strange turn to take, but I want you to think with me for a moment about the abundant generosity of God in creation. You often hear people say, and even even non-believers, they say something like, the best things in life are what? Free. The best things in life are free. And they're absolutely right. Why are they free? Just, Just ask you, why are so many good things free? The warmth of the sunshine, the radiance of the stars and the planets, the beauty of the golden sand and the crashing waves or the sweet smell and the earthy taste of coffee on a Sunday morning. That was me today. Actually, I probably did pay for the beans. (laughs) But all of these things come from a gracious God who provides for us. All of them. When the sun rises in the morning, he doesn't put out his hat and say, $5 for that glorious sunrise this morning. When you're standing at a beautiful beach on the sunny coast or the Gold Coast, because Brisbane's beaches aren't that beautiful, there's no credit card that you need to swipe. You see, this is the abundant generosity of God to all people. This is his common grace to those who are believers or unbelievers alike, but to his special people. The Bible tells us that he has held nothing back from us, not even his own dear son. And Mark Dever says, when you and I struggle 
to give back and show the same abundant generosity of God. We're like a malfunctioning cog in the kingdom of God. What does God do? Well, he delights to give. What is is he going to do for all eternity for his people? Well, he's going to allow us to experience the abundant generosity of everything that he has. And yet he says to his people, back in Malachi's day, your unwillingness to give reflects a deeply insincere worship. You're not trusting, you're not loving, you're not delighting in me. And from here he goes on to call them back to faithful giving. Look at verse 10. He says, Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. Under the old covenant, there were consequences for covenantal disobedience. And this is exactly what we're seeing here. God is withholding his blessing from his people with the deep desire that they might return to him. But instead of responding to the discipline of God, they're effectively doubling down on their unfaithfulness. Effectively, what they're saying to God is, well, it's a little bit like a Mexican standoff. They're saying, well, when you bless us, when the harvest returns, the famine is over, the locusts disappear, which is likely what's going on. When you bless us, God, then we'll start giving to you. But ask yourself this, has God already been good to them? Of course he has. And I think that that sometimes, even as Christians this side of the cross, we, we do a similar thing. We look at God and we say, I'll start serving God when you start doing X, Y, and Z for me. Or I'll start giving to this missionary when you give me this job promotion. And I think that God is standing there looking at us saying, what have I held back from you? What have I held back from you? You see, the law demanded that one-tenth of the property or the produce that the Israelites earned was given back. And Malachi is here challenging them. Return to faithfulness. And I think we've got to just slow down and be, be fair to the Israelites. This was a big test for them. They were suffering, likely, a drought with a locust plague which was destroying all of their crops. 
Now, like us, you know, when you open up the fridge door and it's looking a bit bare, what do you do? You head off to Woolies, Coles, or I, I'm a massive fan of Aldi. That, that's where we go when we're lacking. But for them, their food was short. They were running out. And then Malachi looks at them and says, of the little that you have, I want you to give one-tenth. What are you thinking at that point? I'm just going to be honest. My human heart is doing all of the accounting. I'm going, this is how many weeks of food I've got left. How's this going to work for my family? And then I look back at God and say, well, God, how about you chip in first, and then I'll give back? I can't help but think of a child that is stuck in a tree. The Israelites are in in an awful predicament. And when we're in a troubled position, think of that child in the tree. What do they do? They, they cling for dear life. I've seen this many times with children. They're stuck high up in this tree. They've climbed up and they're realizing that they're in this terrible position. But while they're in this terrible position, they hold all the tighter to that tree. They're hanging on for dear life. But then the father comes with his arms open wide and says, jump to me, I've got you. I think this is what's going on here. To find their security in their father, they have to let go of the little that they have and they have to jump to him. Their creator, their rescuer, their deliverer, their provider. And it is in this moment that we see the response. Malachi says, in the second half of verse 10, see if I will not pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. I will rebuke the devourer for you so that if it it will not destroy the first fruits of your soil, And your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all the nations will call you blessed, for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. Isn't that just delightful? What we don't understand as people that work on the land is that the two worst things that could happen to you a drought and a plague of locusts right at the same time. Why? Well, because if there's drought, clearly nothing's growing. But locusts are so clever that they can drop their eggs so that when the rain returns, what happens? The locusts return. And so you were trapped in this awful cycle. Even once the drought broke, the crops would return and boom, so would the locusts. And here, Malachi is saying, I'm going to deliver, or the Lord of hosts is going to deliver the grandest rescue. The drought will be over, and miraculously, there will be no locusts. And what is the response? Isn't it a beautiful picture that all of the nations, 
are going to look and they will say, these are a blessed people, a land of delight before all the peoples. And this is exactly what Moses said in Deuteronomy. If you faithfully obey the commands I'm giving you today to love the Lord your God and to serve him with all your heart and with all of your soul, then I will send on your land rain so that you may gather in your grain new wine and olive oil. That's Deuteronomy 11. So not only will there be the presence of rain, there will be the destruction of the locusts and the people will know the delight, the joy of being Yahweh's people once again. Just for a few moments as we come to a close now, I want us to just say, but what about for us? Where does this leave us as people this side of the cross? They were stingy givers. They were robbing God, and Malachi calls them to be faithful givers. But by the time we get to the New Testament, you and I are called to offer our whole bodies as living sacrifices. And we're called to be deeply joyful in the way that we give. In 2 Corinthians 9, the Apostle Paul puts it like this. Each of you should give what you have decided in your own heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion. Why? Because God loves what? A cheerful giver. Look, even as I read those words out loud, that is a huge challenge. But you see, in, in the new covenant, you and I can be so deeply thankful that there are no more covenant curses anymore. And if you're a young Christian sitting here this morning thinking, gee, my giving is not great, is God going to send covenant curses on me? No. Jesus is the one who has taken all of the covenant curses for us. We don't have to give a tenth of all that we earn. But this does not mean that God does not care about giving. Remember this. This is where we started the sermon. Giving is a reflection of what we believe about God. And it's a rhythm that reminds us that we must treasure him above all else. Under the old covenant, the people of God had grace, but under the new covenant, John says we have grace upon grace. In the Lord Jesus, God gave us his own dear son who became poor for our sake so that in him we might become rich. Now, if giving is a barometer of what we believe about God, the question is not, do we have to tithe? This is the wrong question to be asking. The right question is this. How great is the goodness of God in his son, the Lord Jesus? How immense is the kingdom of God? How worthy is the king of this kingdom of all of our love and affection? See, I think when you move from the old covenant to the new, 
it's always from the lesser to the greater. God is always moving from the lesser to the greater. And this is why I think that this quote is quite helpful. The New Testament never locks down a specific amount, but something like 10% should be more of a floor than a ceiling. If God has so much more abundantly revealed his grace now in Christ than in the past, our response to that grace also should be more generous rather than less. It's a bit of a challenge, to be honest with you. But I don't want to apply this all negatively. I had a chat with Josh a couple of days ago, and he talked overwhelmingly about how generous you are with your giving. And this is such an incredibly wonderful thing. Because as the people of God come together, and as we give generously to the work of God, more than anything, what we are doing is we are treasuring Christ together. When you as an individual decide that you're going to give to a missionary to support someone sharing Jesus to the ends of the earth, what are you doing? You're saying to your wallet and to your heart that Jesus is worthy. When you give generously to someone who is in need among the family of God, what are you doing? You're saying to your heart, Jesus is worthy. And I do want to say this this morning, that I think that this is a reminder to us that we do not give to God to pay him off so that we don't need to serve in other ways. I think it's so easy uh, for those of us who are are quite wealthy in a country like Australia to think, you know what, I'm going to come to Hertford Street Baptist Church and the sum total of my contribution is this. I'm going to give lots of money. But what I'm going to do is I'm going to hold back the rest of my life because I'm just too busy to serve. I'm too busy to genuinely fellowship, to deeply love. And so I'll just give of my wallet. But I think that if you're applying Malachi's principle, that our giving reflects the state of our hearts, then the New Testament says to us, hold nothing back. Not your wallet, not your time, not your house, your hospitality. All of it belongs to God. I reckon in Australia, and I reckon for Aussie Christians, one of our hardest areas of giving is our homes. Do you know that in Australia, and I know this because I was a town planner, block sizes get smaller and homes have become bigger, and the drawbridge to our castles is the garage door. We press it up. It goes down. It's great. We don't have to talk to anyone. We lock everybody else out. We welcome nobody into our homes, not even our brothers and sisters in Christ. Why? Well, Christian, I do wonder if it's because we don't realize that everything we have, including our homes, is our God's. 
Here's where we will finish. I think this is hugely challenging. This is an article that was on the Gospel Coalition website. And it uh, was a study into giving back during the Great Depression compared to now. Fewer than 5% of churchgoers actually tithe 10% of their income. The average, according to numbers from the empty tomb, that's a research group, is that, a Christ, uh, is that uh, now 21% less is given than what Dust Bowl counterparts gave during the worst of the Great Depression. Figures show that churchgoer contributions have been cascading downward since the 1960s. Now, I don't want to finish by having some big dig at Hertford Street Baptist. That is not my goal. Okay, I, I, from what Josh says, there's much to be thankful for. But I do want to ask this. What did those back then have during the Great Depression that Christians today don't? Well, let me put it another way. Why were they more generous in their giving than we are today. You see, the truth is that we have far more than they did. We have greater certainty about our lives, even through COVID. We have a government that when there's economic crisis just pours huge amounts of money into our bank accounts. We have the great Australian dream booming at the moment. We have so much wealth. What do we have that they don't? Well, at one level, there's nothing that we don't have in abundance that they didn't have during the Great Depression. But what I'd suggest to you we're missing is a big view of God, that he is our provider, that he is our sustainer, and that he is the one in whom we trust. Let's pray. Father, we rejoice that you are an abundantly generous Father. And we rejoice that you have given us this rhythm of giving that reminds us week after week that we are a people that don't ultimately trust in our finances, our superannuation, our great Australian dream. Father, that we are a people that trust and depend on everything that you have done for us in your Son, the Lord Jesus. And Father, for those of us who are wrestling and struggling with this through, Father, I do pray that you would help us to see more clearly how good and how trustworthy you are. Father, that instead of trusting the things of this world, that we would trust you all the more. That, Father, we truly would be people that hold nothing back, that we would offer not just our wallets, but our whole lives as living sacrifices in response to all that you have done. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.